Chapter Thirty Two of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Thirty Two Doubling Cape Horn. In our first attempt to double the Cape, when we came up to the latitude of it, we were nearly seventeen hundred miles to the westward, but in running for the Straits of Magellan, we stood so far to the eastward that we made our second attempt at a distance of not more than four or five hundred miles, and we had great hopes, by this means, to run clear of the ice, thinking that the easterly gales, which had prevailed for a long time, would have driven it to the westward. With the wind about two points free, the yards braced in a little, and two close-reefed topsails, and a reefed foresail on the ship, we made great way towards the southward, and almost every watch, when we came on deck, the air seemed to grow colder, and the sea to run higher. Still we saw no ice, and had great hopes of going clear of it altogether, when one afternoon about three o'clock, while we were taking a siesta during our watch below, all hands was called in a loud and fearful voice. Tumble up here, men! Tumble up! Don't stop for your clothes before we're upon it! We sprang out of our berths and hurried upon deck. The loud, sharp voice of the captain was heard giving orders, as though for life or death, and we ran aft to the braces, not waiting to look ahead, for not a moment was to be lost. The helm was hard up, the after-yards shaking, and the ship in the act of wearing. Slowly, with the stiff ropes and iced rigging, we swung the yards round, everything coming hard and with a creaking and rending sound, like pulling up a plank which has been frozen into the ice. The ship wore round fairly. The yards were steadied, and we stood off on the other tack, leaving behind us, directly under our larboard quarter, a large ice island, peering out of the mist, and reaching high above our tops. While astern on either side of the island, large tracts of field ice were dimly seen, heaving and rolling in the sea. We were now safe, and standing to the northward, but in a few minutes more, had it not been for the sharp lookout of the watch, we should have been fairly upon the ice, and left our ship's old bones adrift in the southern ocean. After standing to the northward a few hours, we wore ship, and the wind having hauled, we stood to the southern and eastward, all night long a bright lookout was kept from every part of the deck, and whenever ice was seen on the one bow or the other, the helm was shifted and the yards braced, and by quick working of the ship, she was kept clear. The accustomed cry of, Ice ahead! Ice on the lee bow! Another island! In the same tones, and with the same orders following them, seemed to bring us directly back to our old position of the week before. During our watch on deck, which was from twelve to four, the wind came out ahead, with a pelting storm of hail and sleet, and we lay hove to, under a close-reefed foretopsail, the whole watch. During the next watch it fell calm, with a drenching rain, until daybreak, when the wind came out to the westward, and the weather cleared up and showed us the whole ocean, in the course which we should have steered, had it not been for the head-wind and calm, completely blocked up with ice. Here, then, our progress was stopped, and we wore ship, 
and once more stood, to the northward and eastward, not for the Straits of Magellan, but to make another attempt to double the Cape, still farther to the eastward, for the captain was determined to get round if Perseverance could do it, and the third time, he said, never failed. With a fair wind we soon ran clear of the field ice, and by noon had only the stray islands floating far and near upon the ocean. The sun was out bright, the sea of a deep blue, fringed with the white foam of the waves, which ran high before a strong southwester. Our solitary ship tore on through the open water as though glad to be out of her confinement, and the ice islands lay scattered here and there, of various sizes and shapes, reflecting the bright rays of the sun, drifting slowly northward before the gale. It was a contrast to much that we had lately seen, and a spectacle not only of beauty, but of life, for it required but little fancy to imagine these islands to be animate masses which had broken loose from the thrilling regions of thick-ribbed ice, and were working their way, by wind and current, some alone and some in fleets, to milder climes. No pencil has ever yet given anything like the true effect of an iceberg. In a picture they are huge, uncouth masses, stuck in the sea, while their chief beauty and grandeur, their slow, stately motion, the whirling of the snow about their summits, and the fearful groaning and cracking of their parts, the picture cannot give. This is the large iceberg, while the small and distant islands, floating on the smooth sea, in the light of a clear day, look like little floating fairy isles of sapphire. From our northeast coast we gradually hauled to the eastward, and after sailing about two hundred miles, which brought us as near to the western coast of Terra del Fuego as was safe, and having lost sight of the ice altogether, for the third time, we put the ship's head to the southern, to try the passage of the Cape. The weather continued clear and cold, with a strong gale from the westward, and we were fast getting up with the latitude of the Cape, with the prospect of soon being round. One fine afternoon a man, who had gone into the foretop to sift the rolling takels, sung out at the top of his voice, and with evident glee, Sail ho! Neither land nor sail had we seen since leaving San Diego, and only those who have traversed the length of the whole ocean alone can imagine what an excitement such an announcement produced on board. Sail ho! shouted the cook, jumping out of his galley. Sail ho! shouted a man, throwing back the slide of the scuttle to the watch below, who were soon out of their berths and on deck. And, Sail ho! shouted the captain down the companionway to the passenger in the cabin. Besides the pleasure of seeing a ship and human beings in so desolate a place, it was important for us to speak to a vessel, to learn whether there was ice to the eastward, and to ascertain the longitude, for we had no chronometer, and had been drifting about so long that we had nearly lost our reckoning, and opportunities for lunar observations are not frequent or sure in such a place as Cape Horn. For these various reasons the excitement in our little community was running high, and conjectures were made, and everything thought of, for which the captain would hail. When the man aloft sung out, "'Another sail, large on the weather bow!' This was a little odd, but so much the better, 
and did not shake our faith in their being sails. At length the man in the top hailed, and said he believed it was land after all. "'Land in your eye!' said the mate, who was looking through the telescope. "'They are ice islands if I can see a hole through a ladder!' In a few moments showed the mate to be right, and all our expectations fled. And instead of what we most wished to see, we had what we most dreaded, and what we hoped we had seen the last of. We soon, however, left these astern, having passed within about two miles of them, and at sundown the horizon was clear in all directions. Having a fine wind, we were soon up with and past the latitude of the Cape, and, having stood far enough to the southern to give it a wide berth, we began to stand to the eastward, with a good prospect of being round and steering to the northward on the other side in a very few days. But ill luck seemed to have lighted upon us. Not four hours had we been standing on in this course before it fell, dead calm, and in half an hour it clouded up, and a few straggling blasts, with spits of snow and sleet, came from the eastward, and in an hour more we lay hove-to under a close-reefed main-topsail, drifting bodily off to leeward before the fiercest storm that we had yet felt, blowing dead ahead from the eastward. It seemed as though the genius of the place had been roused at finding that we had nearly slipped through his fingers, and had come down upon us with tenfold fury. The sailors said that every blast, as it shook the shrouds, and whistled through the rigging, said to the old ship, "'No, you don't! No, you don't!' For eight days we lay drifting about in this manner, sometimes, generally towards noon, it fell calm. Once or twice a round copper ball showed itself for a few moments in the place where the sun ought to have been, and a puff or two came from the westward, giving some hope that a fair wind had come at last. During the first two days we made sail for these puffs, shaking the reefs out of the topsails and boarding the tacks of the courses. But finding that they only made work for us when the gale set in again, it was soon given up, and we lay to under our close reefs. We had less snow and hail than when we were further to the westward, but we had an abundance of what is worse to a sailor in cold weather. Drenching rain. Snow is blinding, and very bad when coming upon a coast. But for genuine discomfort, give me rain with freezing weather. A snowstorm is exciting, and it does not wet through the clothes, a fact important to a sailor. But a constant rain there is no escaping from. It wets to the skin, and makes all protection vain. We had long ago run through all our dry clothes, and as sailors have no other way of drying them than by the sun, we had nothing to do but put on those which were the least wet. At the end of each watch, when we came below, we took off our clothes and wrung them out, two taking hold of a pair of trousers, one at each end, and jackets in the same way. Stockings, mittens, and all were wrung out also, and then hung up to drain and chafe dry against the bulkheads. Then, feeling all our clothes, we picked out those which were the least wet and put them on, so as to be ready for a call, and turned in, covered ourselves up with blankets, and slept until three knocks on the scuttle and the dismal sound of All starboard lines ahoy! Eight bells there below! Do you hear the news? 
drawled out from on deck, and the sulky answer of, Ay, ay, from below, sent us up again. On deck all was dark, and either a dead calm, with the rain pouring steadily down, or, more generally, a violent gale dead ahead, with rain pelting horizontally, and occasional variants of hail and sleet, decks afloat with water swashing from side to side, and constantly wet feet, for boots could not be wrung out like drawers, and no composition could stand the constant soaking. In fact, wet and cold feet are inevitable in such weather, and are not the least of those items which go to make up the grand total of the discomforts of a winter passage round Cape Horn. Few words were spoken between the watches as they shifted. The wheel was relieved, the mate took his place on the quarter-deck, and the lookouts in the bows, and each man had his narrow space to walk fore and aft in, or rather to swing himself forward and back in, from one belying pin to another, for the decks were too slippery with ice and water to allow of much walking. To make a walk which is absolutely necessary to pass away the time, one of us hit upon the expedient of sanding the decks, and afterwards, whenever the rain was not so violent as to wash it off, the weather side of the quarter-deck and a part of the waist and forecastle were sprinkled with the sand which we had on board for holystoning, and thus we made a good promenade, where we walked fore and aft, two and two, hour after hour, in our long, dull, and comfortless watches. The bells seemed to be an hour or two apart instead of half an hour, and an age to lapse before the welcome sound of eight bells. The sole object was to make the time pass on, any change was sought for which would break the monotony of the time, and even the two hours' trick at the will, which came round to us in turn, once in every other watch, was looked upon as a relief. The never-failing resource of long yarns, which eke out many a watch, seemed to have failed us now, for we had been so long together that we had heard each other's stories told over and over again, till we had them by heart, each one knew the whole history of each of the others, and we were fairly and literally talked out. Singing and joking we were in no humor for, and in fact any sound of mirth or laughter would have struck strangely upon our ears, and would not have been tolerated any more than whistling or a wind instrument. The last resort, that of speculating upon the future, seemed now to fail us, for our discouraging situation and the danger we were really in, as we expected every day to find ourselves drifted back among the ice, clapped a stopper upon all that. From saying, when we get home, we begin insensibly to alter it to, if we get home, and at last the subject was dropped by a tacit consent. In this state of things a new light was struck out, and a new field opened by a change in the watch. One of our watch was laid up for two or three days by a bad hand, for in cold weather the least cut or bruise ripens into a sore, and his place was supplied by the carpenter. This was a windfall, and there was a contest who should have the carpenter to walk with him. As Chips was a man of some little education, and he and I had had a good deal of intercourse with each other, he fell in with me in my walk. He was a Finn, but spoke English well, and gave me long accounts of his country, 
the customs, the trade, the towns, what little he knew of the government, I found he was no friend of Russia, his voyages, his first arrival in America, his marriage and courtship. He had married a countrywoman of his, a dressmaker, whom he met with in Boston. I had very little to tell him of my quiet, sedentary life at home, and in spite of our best efforts, which had protracted these yarns through five or six watches, we fairly talked each other out, and I turned him over to another man in the watch, and put myself upon my own resources. I commenced a deliberate system of time-killing, which united some profit with a cheering up of the heavy hours. As soon as I came on deck, and took my place in regular walk, I began with repeating over to myself in regular order a string of matters which I had in my memory. The multiplication table, and the tables of weights and measures, the Kanaka numerals, then the states of the Union with their capitals, the counties of England with their shire towns, and the kings of England in their order, and other things. This carried me through my facts, and being repeated deliberately with long intervals, often eked out the first two bells. Then came the Ten Commandments, the thirty-ninth chapter of Job, and a few other passages from the scripture. The next in order, which I seldom varied from, came Cooper's Castaway, which was a great favorite with me. Its solemn measure and gloomy character, as well as the incident it was founded upon, making it well suited to a lonely watch at sea. Then his lines to Mary, his address to the jackdaw, and a short extract from Table Talk. I abounded in Cooper, for I happened to have a volume of his poems in my chest. Iliad's Nufasto from Horace, and Goethe's Earl Koenig. After I had got through these, I allowed myself a more general range among everything that I could remember, both in prose and verse. In this way, with an occasional break by relieving the wheel, heaving the log, and going to the scuttle-butt for a drink of water, the longest watch was passed away, and I was so regular in my silent recitations that, if there was no interruptions by my ship's duty, I could tell very nearly the number of bells by my progress. Our watches below were no more varied than the watch on deck. All washing, sewing, and reading were given up, and we did nothing but eat, sleep, and stand our watch, leading what might be called a Cape Horn life. The forecastle was too uncomfortable to sit up in, and whenever we were below we were in our berths. To prevent the rain and the sea-water, which broke over the bows from washing down, we were obliged to keep the scuttle closed, so that the forecastle was nearly airtight. In this little wet, leaky hole we were all quartered, in an atmosphere so bad that our lamp, which swung in the middle from the beams, sometimes actually burned blue, with a large circle of foul air about it. Still, I was never in better health than after three weeks of this life. I gained a great deal of flesh, and we all ate like horses. At every watch, when we came below, before turning in, the bread barge and beef kid were overhauled. Each man drank his quart of hot tea night and morning, and glad enough we were to get it, for no nectar and ambrosia were sweeter to the lazy immortals than was a pot of hot tea, a hard biscuit, and a slice of cold salt beef to us, after a watch on deck. 
To be sure, we were mere animals, and had this life lasted a year instead of a month, we should have been little better than the ropes on the ship. Not a razor, nor a brush, nor a drop of water, except the rain and the spray, had come near us all the time, for we were on an allowance of fresh water, and who would strip and wash himself in salt water on deck, in the snow and ice, with the thermometer at zero? After about eight days of constant easterly gales, the wind hauled occasionally a little to the southern and blew hard, which, as we were well to the southern, allowed us to brace in a little, and stand on under all the sail we could carry. These turns lasted but a short while, and sooner or later it set in again from the old quarter. Yet at each time we made something, and were gradually edging along to the eastward. One night, after one of these shifts of the wind, and when all hands had been up a great part of the time, our watch was left on deck, with the mainsail hanging in the buttons, ready to be set if necessary. It came on to blow worse and worse, with hail and snow beating like so many furies upon the ship, it being as dark and thick as night could make it. The mainsail was blowing and sliding with a noise like thunder, when the captain came on deck and ordered it to be furled. The mate was about to call all hands when the captain stopped him, and said that the men would be beaten out if they were called up so often, that, as our watch must stay on deck, it might as well be doing that as anything else. Accordingly we went upon the yard, and never shall I forget that piece of work. Our watch had been so reduced by sickness, and by some having been left in California, that, with one man at the wheel, we had only the third mate and three beside myself to go aloft so that at most we could only attempt to furl one yard-arm at a time. We maintained the weather yard-arm and set to work to make a furl of it, our lower mast being short, and our yards very square. The sail had a head of nearly fifty feet, and a short leech, made still shorter by the deep reef which was in it, which brought the clue away out on the quarters of the yard, and made a bunt nearly as square as the mizzen royal yard. Besides this difficulty, the yard over which we lay was cased with ice, the gaskets and rope of the foot, and leech of the sail as stiff and hard as a piece of leather hose, and the sail itself about as pliable as though it had been made of sheets of sheathing copper. It blew a perfect hurricane, with alternate blasts of snow, hail, and rain. We had to fist the sail with bare hands. No one could trust himself to mittens for if he slipped he was a gone man. All the boats were hoisted in on deck, and there was nothing to be lowered for him. We had need of every finger God had given us. Several times we got the sail upon the yard, but it blew away again before we could secure it. It required men to lie over the yard to pass each turn of the gaskets, and when they were passed it was almost impossible to knot them so that they would hold. Frequently we were obliged to leave off altogether, and take to beating our hands upon the sail to keep them from freezing. After some time, which seemed forever, we got the weather side stowed after a fashion, and went over to leeward for another trial. This was still worse, for the body of the sail had been blown over to leeward, and as the yard was a cockabill by the line over of the vessel, we had to light it all up to windward. When the yard-arms were furled, the bunt was all adrift again, which made more work for us. We got all secure at last, but we had been nearly an hour and a half upon the yard, 
and it seemed an age. It had just struck five bells when we went up, and eight were struck soon after we came down. This may seem slow work, but considering the state of everything, and that we had only five men to sell, with just half as many square yards of canvas in it as the mainsailed independent sixty-gun ship, which muster seven hundred men at her quarters, it is not wonderful that we were no quicker about it. We were glad enough to get on deck, and still more to go below. The eldest sailor in the watch said as he went down, "'I shall never forget that main yard. It beats all my going a-fishin'. Fun is fun, but furling one yard-arm of a course at a time off Cape Horn is no better than man-killing.' During the greater part of the next two days the wind was pretty steady from the southward. We had evidently made great progress, and had good hope of being soon up with the Cape, if we were not there already. We could put but little confidence in our reckoning, as there had been no opportunities for an observation, and we had drifted too much to allow of our dead reckoning being anywhere near the mark. If it would clear off enough to give a chance for an observation, or if we could make land, we should know where we were, and upon these and the chances of falling in with a sail from the eastward, we depended almost entirely. Friday, July 22nd. This day we had a steady gale from the southern and stood on under close sail, with the yards eased a little by the weather braces, the clouds lifted a little, and showing signs of breaking away. In the afternoon I was below with Mr. Hatch, the third mate, and two others, filling the bread-locker and the steerage from the casks, when a bright gleam of sunshine broke out and shone down the companionway, and through the skylight, lighting up everything below, and sending a warm glow through the hearts of all. It was a sight we had not seen for weeks, an omen, a godsend. Even the roughest and hardest face acknowledged its influence. Just at that moment we heard a loud shout from all parts of the deck, and the mate called out down the companionway to the captain, who was sitting in the cabin. What he said we could not distinguish, but the captain kicked over his chair and was on deck at one jump. We could not tell what it was, and anxious as we were to know, the discipline of the ship would not allow of our leaving our places. Yet, as we were not called, we knew there was no danger. We hurried to get through with our job, when, seeing the steward's black face peering out of the pantry, Mr. Hatch hailed him to know what was the matter. "'Lano, to be sure, sir. No, you hear him singing out, Lano? Dear Captain, say him, keep on!' This gave us a new start, and we were soon through our work and on deck, and there lay the land, fair upon the larboard beam and slowly edging away upon the quarter. All hands were busy looking at it, the captain and mates from the quarter-deck, the cook from his galley, and the sailors from the forecastle, and even Mr. Nuttall, the passenger, who had kept in his shell for nearly a month and hardly been seen by anybody, and who we had almost forgotten was on board, came out like a butterfly, and was hopping round as bright as a bird. The land was the island of Statenland, just to the eastward of Cape Horn, and a more desolate-looking spot I never wished to set eyes upon, bare, broken, and girt with rocks and ice, and here and there, between the rocks and broken hillocks, a little stunted vegetation of shrubs. It was a place well suited to stand at the junction of the two oceans, beyond the reach of human cultivation, 
and encounter the blasts and snows of a perpetual winter. Yet, dismal as it was, it was a pleasant sight to us, not only as being the first land we had seen, but because it told us that we had passed the Cape, were in the Atlantic, and that, with twenty-four hours of this breeze, we should bid defiance to the southern ocean. It told us, too, our latitude and longitude better than any observation, and the captain now knew where we were, as well as if we were off the end of Long Wharf. In the general joy, Mr. Nettle said that he should like to go ashore upon the island and examine a spot which probably no human being had ever set foot upon, but the captain intimated that he would see the island, specimens and all, in another place, before he would get out a boat or delay the ship one moment for him. We left the land gradually astern, and at sundown had the Atlantic Ocean clear before us. End of chapter 32